DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be joined once again by Dr. Scott Hahn, who is the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville. He is the founder and president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He's also the author or editor of over 40 popular and academic books. Dr. Hahn's works include best-selling titles such as Rome Sweet Home, The Lamb's Supper, and The First Society. With Dr. Scott Hahn, we go inside the pages of It Is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion, published by Emmaus Road. Dr. Hahn, thank you once again for joining me. It's great to be with you again, Chris. And Kimberly sends her best. Oh, just love her. I hope everybody's listening to her podcast. I I'm do so too. Now that is right and just, having her on the air. How's that? <laughs> I think that's so important. Amen. But in the meantime, I wanted to say it's a delight to be with you to talk about a yet another important work that has come out of the St. Paul Center and Emmaus Road. And I love It Is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion. Now, Dr. Hahn, there might be some out there who would pose the question, why is it one of the most preeminent biblical scholars, I would say, throughout the world, you're pretty humble, but I, I think that's true, would feel the need to write an extraordinarily stellar book on, I think you could say this is moral theology. Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, three thoughts. First of all, I've been teaching moral theology off and on for about 30-some years, since mm -hmm. 1987 was one, among the first courses that I taught. Second, it's clear that covenant is sort of my main emphasis and focus. And covenant is central in Scripture, but it is also the foundation for Catholic moral theology, and not just individual ethics, but also social ethics as well. And so, the third thing is that uh, I'm taking what has been implicit in most all of my books over the years and making it more explicit. You know, I, I can almost sense a narrative arc that begins back with Rome's Sweet Home, where the notion of the covenant led us to recognize that the family of God is now Catholic, that is, it's universal, and that the sacraments are not merely symbolic, but powerful. Mm -hmm. And so with the, uh, the next book, A Father Who Keeps His Promises, I draw a timeline to show how God is fathering a family from the beginning, where there's a married couple in the garden, and then there are four married couples aboard the ark. Noah and his three sons are all married. And so there's a household, but then that household becomes a tribe with Abraham, 12 tribes with Israel, and then no longer is it just one nation, it becomes make disciples of all nations. And so the Catholic Church is the climax of salvation history. It's Catholic, not because it's international or global, but because it's universal. And so the next work, The Lamb's Supper, focuses upon how it is that when you go to Mass, whether you know it or not, you go to heaven. And the angels and saints are who we're with. The same songs, the same prayers, the same sacrifice of the Lamb that is celebrated in glory up there is what is celebrated under signs down here, but they're not mere signs, as you know, they're powerful sacraments. And so mm -hmm. the, the idea of lifting up our hearts to the Lord 
you know, and then discovering how right and just it is to give him thanks and praise. Uh, I, I think of another crucial book, and that is Hail Holy Queen, where the queenship of Mary, like the kingship of Jesus, is not just celestial, it really is universal. It's Catholic, and that includes the earth. So mm -hmm. he tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this earth, but he doesn't say that it's not here in this place. It's derived from heaven. It's derived from the eternal realm of God. And so swear to God was another crucial link in the chain because you know the promise and power of the sacraments show us that if we're going to celebrate the sacraments, we must live them out faithfully. But that doesn't allow us to live them out exclusively in a private way. Mm -hmm. Our lives are private, but they're also public. They're personal, but they're also social. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I got around to one of my last books called The First Society, The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order, you know, I drew from an insight that I got from Father Donald Keefe, a brilliant Jesuit who I was studying under for a doctorate way back in the mid-80s, when we were discussing whether, role, whether religion has a role to play in the public square in political life? And if so, what is the limitation of that role? And, you know, we were debating back and forth in that seminar, but he just quipped almost cynically, but not really. He said, you know, if Catholic married couples simply lived the grace of the sacrament of matrimony out for one generation, the result would be a Christian society, a Catholic social order. But I digress. And so we went back to the lecture and back to the debate in the seminar, but I could not get that out of my mind. And, and so in a certain way, it might seem like I'm dabbling in a new area, but in another sense, I feel as though I'm sort of making obvious what has been implied throughout all of this, uh, throughout all of these many years. So that helps. Uh, oh, it, it does tremendously, because I think what you've done here is uh, when you look at it is right and just why the future of civilization depends on true religion that some may look at this in a narrow scope and say, well, this is a, a book that is addressing a particular political dilemma that we find ourselves in in our society today. And yet, as you begin to dive into the pages of this incredible work, what you're finding is that this is at the very essence of who we are as human beings, period. Right. And that's important <laughs> yeah. to look at that, right? It certainly is. You know, I, I can't help but think of this line from uh, Thomas Akempis, The Imitation of Christ, Book 1, Chapter 19. In the Latin, it's something like, uh, homo proponit sed Deus disponit. That is, man proposes, but God disposes. Mm. And I think that, you know, this work did not arise from the political crisis of the last election cycle. Uh, mm. Any more than, you know, I propose doing a book called Hope to Die, the Christian Meaning of Death and mm -hmm. the Resurrection of the Body, thinking it would be timely for Easter, you know, never foreseeing what God clearly foresaw, and that was the COVID pandemic. And so it came out just in time for people to really reflect in the light of faith upon the, the fact of our mortality, that none of us are going to get out of here alive. So let's make the best of a a bad situation, and then turn it into something truly glorious. And so I didn't know that that book would come out with such divine timing. I also didn't know that about this one, you know. And when you say, you know, it seems to address a particular problem or a crisis that we face right now, that is true, but not just in a particular moment. I mean, that is true for the last 2,000 years 
of church history. Uh, everywhere you go and find the faith, you're going to find a particular political crisis, one thing or another. And it's tempting, I suspect, for Catholics in every generation, in every part of the planet, to sort of compartmentalize their lives so that what I do as a Catholic focuses mostly on one day out of the week, Sunday, not the other six. Well, that doesn't work. Well, okay, it's going to focus upon my interior disposition, that is my heart. It's like a personal relationship between Jesus and me and my soul, but not necessarily my body. Or if my body, not necessarily my finances. Or if my finances, you know, my marriage, yeah, my kids, my family, you know, I say here on page 179, it doesn't make sense to want to sanctify yourself, but not your spouse. You know, it doesn't make sense to want sanctity for yourself, but not for your spouse, for your spouse, but not for your kids, for your kids, but not for your neighbors, for your neighbors, but not for your city, for your city, but not for your nation, for your nation, but not for the world. You know, it, it, it just seems to me that if we could see things through the eyes of Jesus, uh, risen, enthroned as the King of Kings, and not just as a high priest, mm -hmm. we would recognize why it is that, you know, there isn't a single square inch of the earth that he doesn't point to and say, that's mine, I purchased it. Just like there isn't a single person on the planet he doesn't look at and say, I suffered, bled, died, and rose for you as well. And not just for isolated individuals, but for married couples, for families, Sanctity is what he wants for each of us, but for all of us together. And if we think that sanctifying the social order, which is exactly what Vatican II called for, not sanitizing, not cleaning it up, but sanctifying the temporal order. Well, you know, that might just seem inappropriate. That might seem illicit. That's, you know, that's just going to prove to be frustrating. You know, that's impossible. Well, actually, sanctifying Scott Hahn is humanly impossible. And yet, if God is all-powerful in his merciful love, and he can make me a saint, mm -hmm. and Kimberly too, and our kids, and there's no reason why the Lord doesn't want to do this. And the very fact that his parting words to the disciples in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you know, all authority in heaven and on earth will be given to me at the end of time? No. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, period. Therefore, go and do what? Go and make disciples within all of these different nations? No, go and make disciples of all the nations. Right. You want to press pause and say, Jesus, let's rewind and let's say that a little differently because that isn't even close to the realm of reality, you know. Mm -hmm. And yet, this is what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent by the Father to accomplish. And it's not the case that it's all about numbers. Well, why aren't we succeeded? Well, let's blame the Pope or the bishops or whatever. No. I mean, you look at what Christ did for three years, and mm -hmm. in terms of the numbers game, it wasn't a total success. And so it's never about, you know, 80% or 90%, you know. And when we hear distressing news like 70% of American Catholics believe that the Eucharist is only symbolism, well, that's tragic, but at the same time, we can take hope because 30% of us here in America, a totally secularized society, still do believe that what <laughs> looks like a wafer is actually the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the risen Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, 
And it's not just his physical body tucked away safely in heaven and brought down to us. It's the mystical body. It's the whole Christ. And it's like, if we can believe that, you know, because God has revealed it, Mm -hmm. then anybody can, if we allow God to use us to take this out and to really, you know, share this with other people, not expecting to convince them ourselves, but expecting that God might choose to use us as instruments. And so we're not measuring our hope based upon, you know, uh, electoral cycles or Gallup polls or anything else. But we just, you know, I'm reminded of Alfred Lord Tennyson and the Charge of the Light Brigade. You know, ours is not to reason why, ours is but to do or die. We have our marching orders. And so if it is right and just to give God thanks and praise for persons, for families, for congregations, then it's right and just for the nations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, back in Psalm 115, doesn't apply to Israel only. No, I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 22 that it will be taken from you and given to nations that will produce fruits worthy of it. What will? The kingdom. And so we really have to not do a kind of political calculus, but to recognize that in receiving these sacraments safely, the only way we can do that is by going out boldly and sharing. And we're not going to succeed in our secularized culture today by making little compromises and then a few more. So if we're not going to succeed through compromise, but we're facing, you know, I I hate to sound cynical, but I think it's Mm -hmm. a sanctified cynicism. Well, let's fail without compromising. If we're going to go down anyway, let's go down with a clean heart, looking Jesus right in the eye and telling our kids and our grandkids it's worth it. You know, whether God grants us success or not, the success is really measured in terms of holiness. And holiness is measured not just by obedience, but by love, the obedience of love. Beautifully said. Amen. We'll return to Inside the Pages in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. 
We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Inside the Pages. There's a portion in the book, actually, it's you're examining what happens. It's, it's a summation of so much which is contained in It Is Right and Just, which I think probably should become a textbook. I really do. I think this should be in the seminaries and and in RCIA programs. And, I won't fight and, you. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, so many places because we've lost our sense of what our terms mean. And you help us to get back to those roots. That's why it's so important. To, and it's all anchored in scripture. But you were talking about the fall of Rome and in St. Augustine's letter, The City of God, or his letter, his book, his great magnum opus. As, as you're reading that, you point out that you can't go in and take over the, the government institutions and all these other things. It first has to start with the transformation inwardly of ourselves. And to be those Christians you, you just spoke of, that 30% needs to be living out that Christian life after receiving the Eucharist. And it's so bright and it's so shining that people are attracted to that shining hill that has this great beacon of people. That's right. You know, I'm glad you brought up St. Augustine, uh, not only because, uh, you know, his book is important, but in some ways it's transformative mm -hmm. in Catholic history and not just intellectually, but socially and personally. Mm -hmm. Uh, I won't go off, as I often do in class, about the city of God. But, you know, in the city of God, we have, we have for the very first time, a, um, a theology of universal human history. And mm -hmm. it's not just looking at Rome and why it's collapsing. It's not just looking at Israel either. You know, uh, the word city in Latin, civitate, is not like an urban metropolis the way we think of it. You know, back then in antiquity, you can look up various uses and meanings for Chivitate, but it also bespeaks an extended family. Mm -hmm. And what Augustine does by beginning in the beginning with Genesis is to look through the lens of Genesis 10, the table of nations, to show that God gave to ancient Israel what no other ancient people ever possessed, and that is a genealogy that extends to all of the nations. I mean, we know that everybody's descended from, you know, Adam and Eve or from Noah and his wife after the flood mm -hmm. and all of that. But the 70 nations that are identified in Genesis 10 represent all of the peoples who are descended from one family. But they still, one, they still form one family, mm -hmm. at least in God's fatherly eyes. Now, it's one big family that becomes one big broken family in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. But Augustine shows that the promise of faith that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12 sequentially is... I will bless all the nations through you, bless all the families of the earth so that they will form one family. And so this has been on the mind of God. This has been on his fatherly heart 
from the beginning. And so what is the most important thing? Which political party you belong to? No, how you worship. There's lower justice, which is economic and transactional. There's a slightly higher justice, which is social in terms of equity and fairness and how we treat the needy and the infirm. But the highest form of justice, and this is something that Augustine recognized, but so did Cicero, so did Seneca, so did Plato and Aristotle, mm -hmm. that the highest form of justice are the things that are transcendent, transcendent, transcendent justice. Like you can't pay back your parents and give them life. You can't pay back your country and give them the common good, but you show honor and respect and piety towards your parents. You show patriotism towards your country, but above all, religion. It's the highest form of justice. And so, I mean, religion for Cicero was the highest moral virtue for Augustine and Aquinas as well, but it's not just because they found it in the Bible. They find it in the natural law through natural reason, and it applies to the natural order, we owe God thanks and praise, and it is right and just to give it to him, and it's a wrong thing to not give God thanks and praise, and it's not just a personal injustice. It is a cosmic crime. It is a massive social injustice to privatize religion, to relativize the truth of God, and Augustine's whole magnum opus, City of God, is basically saying it isn't just religion, it's right religion. It's the truth of the right religion of the Catholic faith upon which Rome depends. And so all of the barbarians worshiping the pagan gods through idolatry brought all sorts of immorality, but also all sorts of judgment. And God is here to heal us. And I could go on and on, but I'm telling you, you know, the city of God, he explains, he defines as being based upon those who love God above all things, those who love God even to the contempt of self, and they love their neighbor as their self, but we love our neighbor as ourselves for the love of God, whereas the city of man, going all the way back to Cain, who kills his brother and the devil, you know, that's where we love self, even to the point of the contempt of God. And so we find ourselves in a mixed up situation, and we ever since the fall, mm -hmm. but this idea you know, of what Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And he uses the technical term in the Greek polytuma for what Saul of Tarsus had, and that is Roman citizenship. You know, I have a few friends who have dual citizenship. Some mm -hmm. countries allow it, others don't. But what we have to rediscover is that as Catholics, we all have dual citizenship because our primary and everlasting citizenship is in heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so if we're living in America and we love our country, the best thing we can do for our country here on earth is to bring down upon it the grace from heaven so that more and more people can enter into this city of God, into this family of God. And I'm, I must admit, I am really passionate about this. I, I don't really think I have to admit it by now. It's obvious. But uh, I, I, I do think that it is high time for people to recognize that uh, if we're not going to go out and Christianize society, then the society is going to welcome itself into the church and de-Christianize the church. There really isn't a third option. And this is what Vatican II is talking about. Not only the universal call to holiness, so that even ordinary Catholic lay people are called to become saints, but sanctifying the temporal order. When you look at the decree on the laity, Apostolicum Actuositatum, it is one of the least studied, the least read of the 16 documents of Vatican II, but we got our marching orders to go out and sanctify this society. 
we could celebrate the fact that the you know that the world was sort of like paying attention to us way back in the 60s when we were convening and meeting for the second vatican council but it's like you know producing all of that literature is worth nothing if we're not going to go out and implement it you know yeah. and i could go on and on i'm sorry <laughs> No, I'm so, glad you just keep writing and writing because then it, it gives uh, that platform to be able to go on and on. Yeah. Again, Dr. Hum, this book is so important because there's a reason why in the liturgy we were instructed to begin to say over and over again, it is right and just. And yet we don't, I dare say, and I am as guilty as anybody, I, I must admit, I never appreciated our definition of our terms, our words, what is right, what is just. And what you've done is you helped us connect in that beautiful scope that you just gave us of the different works that you've been doing for so many years. And so church has been so blessed with that, is that you brought it right back into why we have to understand what is right and what is just, what is justice, what is religion? Sometimes I think we look at religion, it's something that falls out from spirituality, And in actuality, you show us that it's religion that comes first and everything else flows from that. Am I, am I stating that properly? You sure are. You know, the the first thought that came to my mind was, you know, the lamb supper, lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, hail Mm -hmm. holy queen, another title that is drawn from a prayer, you know, and likewise, Lord have mercy on the healing power of confession. And there are probably at least a half a dozen other titles that I've used because well, I think back to when I was a child growing, growing up in a family, and like most kids, I took most things for granted, you know? Mm-hmm. And so when I said, I love you, mommy, it was because I was hoping she might give me more dessert or something, you know? Mm-hmm. But five years ago, when my mother passed away, mm-hmm. and I was telling her in the last few weeks of her life how much I loved her, you know, it really wasn't something different than what I said when I was a little child. You just realize how inexhaustible, how much more you say, how much, you know... There's so much more truth in what we say than we realize that we're conscious of when we're saying it. And that's not just true for children. That's true for us as adults who gather to worship the Father in heaven. I I dare say that when we gather before God the Father, he looks at us and, and sees his children, but he looks and sees the same thing that we find in Genesis 10, the table of nations. As he told Moses at the burning bush, go tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. What does that imply? Not that God has, you know, the family of God is, you know, an only child family. No, Israel is the firstborn, which implies that all of the other nations are called to be children of God. And all of the citizens within those nations are called to be children of God. But just as we parented our firstborn first because he came before the others. And in our case, God blessed us because Michael was such a good role model, a pace setter, a mediator and all of that and still is. Dr. Han, the younger seminary professor, I could go on with pride. But the fact is, this is God's fatherly plan. It's his heart. It's his passion. And it ought to become ours if we're going to grow up and realize that, wow, when we say it is right and just for us to give him thanks and praise, then we want to spread that kind of justice. And not just in terms of legality. You know, Jesus reminded us back again in Matthew's gospel and practically all of them, that Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 is not just for Israel. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, this is the greatest command. And to love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, 18, you know, isn't just true for Israel. This is true for all people. 
people. And so we study the Old Testament. We find it a little overwhelming, but in the process, we can look through the lens of prophecy and realize that the father groomed his eldest son, Israel, for all of the Israel's siblings, all of the Gentile nations to study, to see how God is a father who keeps his promises, even when his son becomes a prodigal son and runs away and all of those things. We can, we can kind of crack the code of the covenant and realize that the only logic that makes sense out of all of these laws, and the rabbis were fond of enumerating 613 commandments in the law of Moses, but the only one that integrates all of them is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's not just private, but public, not just personal, but social. It's not just liturgical. It is religious and it's political. It is all of the above, you know, and even the term liturgy is derived from the Greek term liturgia, which in ancient Greece was used to describe the department of public works. And so if you look at, you know, what we call the professions, medicine, law, teaching, you literally had to profess faith because you're not just you know you're not just involved in a commercial transaction called a contract where this is yours and that is mine you're giving life you're giving truth you're giving justice you know and so you've got to make a profession of faith because you are serving the common good not just your own public interests so you've got to profess your faith in God and ask him so help me god you know and i just feel like you know there's such a fragmentation, such a compartmentalization. You know, I think back to almost 50 years ago where two men in Sweden robbed a bank and they took four hostages and they were there for five days until finally the prime minister intervened with smoke bombs and through the cops and all of that. You know, and only in the trial did you realize how complicit those hostages became because they were publicly complaining about how the two hostage takers who robbed the bank were mistreated with tear gas and all of that, from which we get the, the phrase, the phenomenon known as the Stockholm syndrome. Right. You know, and I, I can't help but wonder if Catholics in our postmodern secularized society don't suffer from something of a spiritual Stockholm syndrome where we've been taken hostage. But in some ways, we're, we're more concerned about appeasing all of the the powerful secularizers that surround us uh, in order to show that, hey, we can be charitable too. We don't want to indulge in hate speech or whatever. And it's time to press pause on that machine and press play on the other one and get back to life as God's sons and daughters. First, amen to that, all of that. Again, as I said, it's so important. It is right and just why the future of civilization depends on true religion. It's because it's an important work that is a call to virtue. Yeah, you right. always anchor in vir virtue. And the work of the St. Paul Center has been, I will just give a personal testimony, has affected me and what, how not only how I live out my marriage, how I live out my care of my family, but also in the ministry and anything that we have done, both my husband, Bruce, and I have been involved in Catholic media in various forms for a couple decades now. But in a time when the culture, we're all rocking in our boats, have are maybe just a little seasick, <laughs> we're, we're, not, we're not sure where to go. You've always been that lighthouse of virtue, which is so attractive and it and it's, calls us to our better selves. For the lay Catholic out there who is unsettled and confused, and they're, they're just trying to make it through, 
or that person who is looking to the Catholic Church right now in particular, as well as just even the Christianity as a whole. And all they're seeing in some voices, in some circles, they're hearing such a, a voice of disunity, of division, and even, I dare say, it, accusation. While that, there, it's important to call out something that is wrong is wrong, yet there's a, I don't know if you've heard it, but it's just there's a bit more of a, a fire to it. Can you help us to know when to discern that maybe to stay away from those kind of things? Or when is that a danger for us and for our families? Is that yeah, a fair question? question? Yeah, it sure is. You know, I, I think it's important to recognize that the principle of unity is Christ and working through the Holy Spirit with the, the Blessed Virgin Mary at his side and all of the angels and saints who assemble with us for each and every sacramental celebration, for every liturgy, every mass especially. And so just as you have to sometimes renew the wellspring in your own prayer life, uh, it's become stagnant. It's just you know a bunch of habits that are no longer fresh, just as you have to reignite a flame in your own marriage from time to time, you know, especially when we were going through those years where we had so many kids at once and we were so busy, so exhausted, we were moving, I think, 11 times in our first 10 years. You, you have to find the way to uh, take that spark and blow on it and rekindle the fire of love in your sacramental marriage, but also in the sacramental bond with Christ. And so I think what, is, what I'm hearing our Lord saying to his people is, find me, fall back in love with me, because I'm in search of you. And I want to make the prayers that you offer something more than the prayers that you say. I want them to read, to be what the catechism says. Prayer is meant to be a covenant. And it's the way we live the covenant. It's the way that the covenant comes to life so that it's not just truths, it's a reality. They're not just realities, they are powerful and beautiful realities that you come back to and you're like, oh yeah, wow. I didn't even realize how much I'd come to take it for granted. But mm -hmm. in our secularized society, which is not becoming less and less secular, but more, I think the need that we have to rekindle that romance with our Lord and our Lady, and to reorient ourselves so that we recognize that as important as the bishop is as the successor to the apostles, as important as, as you know, the pope is as the successor to Peter, ultimately, you know, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And he wants to begin in my heart and in my marriage and in my home and in my prayers this morning and again this evening. And so uh, you know, the last thought is a silly one, but... I'm reminded of one of my favorite comic strips, Peanuts, where Charles Schultz, the Catholic, you know, mm -hmm. has this little yellow bird named Woodstock. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the beginning of a sequence of these, uh, uh, the comic strip, and he has his wings held up a, aloft. And Lucy's like, what are you doing? Well, Charlie Brown, he heard that the sky is falling. You think you could hold up the sky with those two little wings? And they go off, you know, laughing in mockery. And the, and, the, and the final you know, saying is Woodstock says, you know, one does what one can. And mm -hmm. I'm always reminded of that because I am not the optimist that Kimberly is. I am not as positive as she is. I can tend to be more negative. And so what our Lord reminds me of again and again is just do what you can. Give it to me and I will multiply those five loaves, those two little fish, you know, mm -hmm. as I choose, you know, 
we propose God disposes. And so into his hands, we commit ourselves, our families, and our parish, our diocese, and the whole Catholic Church. But remember that when we call it Catholic, we don't mean planetary or global. It's Catholic because it's universal. The saints and the angels and the mother of God are not members of another denomination. Mm -hmm. They are the true blue, full-fledged members of the Catholic Church. And we, in the state of grace, we are in the church militant, you know, but they're in the church triumphant. And we have got to strengthen our bonds with them in order to really enable them to assist us as much as they want to in helping us to become saints and to join them in this heavenly homecoming. So these are the truths that aren't just talking points. They're not just articles in the creed. These are the realities that are going to be continuing on long after the Democratic and the, and the Republican parties are, you know, uh, chapters in history books. How many times can I say amen in the middle in an interview? I just, I, wow, it, amen, amen to all of that. Yeah, I think what, I, what we are called to do is to kind of blow off the dust from these, these stones that we call beliefs and recognize they're precious gems and then discover that all that we're called to believe, all that we're called to do, you know, it's like really exciting. And it's been hiding in plain view. Like, all we've got to do is just connect the dots and we're like, wow, you know, this is scary. Yeah, it's dangerous for sure, but it's exciting. And there is nothing more exciting than living the Catholic life on this teeny little planet of ours. Well, with you as a guide and your books, all of them, including It's Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion, as our, uh, the best type of, uh, you know, book that we can have, whether it's in our hands, it's on our Kindles or our phones and um, anywhere else. You just, you've been such a tremendous friend to your brothers and sisters in, in faith. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott Hahn. Oh, Chris, you are so welcome. Thank you for all that you're doing, not only as a, you know, as a family, as a wife, but also as an apostle and as a sister in Christ. It's amazing to see how your work bears so much good fruit. Well, a lot of that has been because of the seeds you've sown. So thank you, Dr. Hans, so very much. You're welcome. Take care and God bless. With Dr. Scott Hahn, we've gone inside the pages of It is Right and Just. Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, visit stpaulcenter.com, the website for its publisher, Emmaus Road Publishing, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it on the Discerning Hearts free app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel it's worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com. And join us next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.